information they're looking for, they win. Ignore them, you win. Welcome, everyone. I am Ari Ingle, the director of Creative Community for Peace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for anyone joining us for the first time, Creative Community for Peace is a nonprofit entertainment industry organization comprised of prominent members of the entertainment community who have come together to promote the arts to bridge to peace, to counter anti-Semitism within the entertainment industry, and to galvanize support against the cultural boycott of Israel. To learn more about our work and to support our work, please visit ccfpeace.com. That is ccfpeace.com or creativecommunityforpeace.com, creativecommunityforpeace.com. Uh, we are glad to have all of you with us today in our public square and joining us for this 12th installment of our Dispelling the Myth series, which is an educational series of conversations with some of the leading experts on the issues and challenges facing Israel and the Jewish people today. If you've missed any of the previous discussions, you can find them on the previous events section of our website or on our podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing Hezbollah with two of the leading experts on this very dangerous terrorist organization that we think is uh, not completely understood by many people. Uh, please feel free to leave questions in the Q&A section of the chat, and I'll try to get to as many of them as possible towards the end of the discussion. As always, we ask you just please leave only questions in the Q&A section. All other comments or ideas can always be emailed to us at info at creativecommunityforpeace.com. So in conversation with you today... Uh, first is Dr. Matthew Levitt, who is the Frome Wexler Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, where he directs the Institute's Reinhardt Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. He is also the Andrew H. Siegel Professor in American Middle East Policy at Georgetown University Center for Jewish Civilization and School of Foreign Service. Previously, Matthew served in the Senior Executive Service as a Deputy Assistant Secretary for Intelligence and Analysis at the U.S. Department of the Treasury, and before that as an FBI counterterrorism analyst, including work on the millennial and September 11th plots. Uh, Matthew is also the author of Hezbollah, the global footprint of Lebanon's party of God. He is also the creator of the Lebanese Hezbollah sect worldwide activity interactive map, as well as the excellent new podcast series, Breaking Hezbollah's Golden Rule. Welcome Matthew. Uh, also joining us today is Dave Daoud, who is the co-founder, Lebanon and Hezbollah analyst at Resistance Access Monitor. He is also a research and analyst on Hezbollah and Lebanon United Against Nuclear Iran. Prior to that, he held a similar position at the Foundation of Defense of Democracies. He has also previously worked as a staff member on Capitol Hill, advising on matters related to the Middle East, Israel, and Iran. David holds a JD with a concentration in international law and law of armed conflict. His work has been cited and published in several outlets, including Foreign Policy, Haaretz, Newsweek, New York Times, Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and he is also a must-follow for everything Hezbollah-related on Twitter. Welcome. Thank you so much. Um, so let's just start with laying the groundwork, uh, maybe with you, Matthew. When was Hezbollah founded, and why was it founded? First of all, thank you so much for holding this webinar and for having me on it. It's a real pleasure to do it, and especially big pleasure to be able to do it with uh, David, who's a good friend, aside from being a good scholar. So it's actually a little bit of a loaded question. Um, Hezbollah was founded in 1982, full stop, period. You can look back at declassified CIA and other reports in the time where you can see that they recognize that this group already existed. You can look at German and other government reports. It's, it's a done deal. But Hezbollah didn't acknowledge itself at that time. 
when it was first founded, it was only a secretive militant terrorist organization. Its activities in politics and social welfare activities, all the public side that it take, goes to great lengths to publicize today, didn't exist back then. It was just carrying out acts of terrorism and militancy. It only acknowledged its existence formally three years later in 1985, when it issued its open letter, as it calls it, laying out its ideology. And the bottom line, why then? Because this was just a few years, a couple of years after the Islamic Revolution in Iran. And it was the Iranians who sent about 1,500 Quds Force officers to the Bekaa Valley to kind of mold together what had been a motley crew of sometimes competing Shia militant organizations into what became the formalized, well-structured, hierarchical, well-trained, well-armed, well-funded, all Iranian arms and funding organization that we know of as Hezbollah today. And, and by the way, each of you feel free to jump in if anyone wants to add anything um, throughout either of these questions. So I don't know if, David, you have anything else to add on, on some of the founding of the organization? Well, I mean, speaking to, 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 to the, uh, the right time, right, there was also the uh, historical coincidence of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon right. uh, that gave the Iranians and Hezbollah the ability to establish this group and kind of create this narrative also that it was not an extension uh, of the Iranians, but... Uh, you know, an, an opposition to the Israeli invasion and subsequent occupation of Lebanon. Uh, this allowed them to build this narrative that they were a resistance group and not a forward vanguard of the IRGC, which is what they are. Uh, and that's kind of how they, they acted for the next decade plus after announcing their existence in 1985, uh, using the Israeli occupation and the nexus of interests that existed between the Lebanese and the Syrians uh, for their own reasons and, and kind of either keeping pressure on the Israelis in South Lebanon or expelling the Israelis to build this, this armed strength that now has made them, uh, well, immune to Lebanese uh, governmental influence or control. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was a good coincidence. It was the right timing. Uh, the, the, the Israeli invasion also um, created a lot of displeasure among uh, the Shiite population that prior to that had been partially sympathetic to the Israelis because of their friction with the PLO. So it was a, 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 a the right historical mix uh, as well. And how are they seen by uh, people in Lebanon? I mean, I'm assuming the Shiite maybe welcomed them, but in general, how were they perceived and were they welcomed or did people from the outset seem, think this was, you know, a pretty dangerous organization? I think it depends, right? And I think Matt would agree with this, right? There's there's no one vision uh, on Hezbollah, and I don't think it necessarily breaks down by sect, right? Uh, one of Matt's uh, good colleagues, uh, Hanin, Dr. Hanin, or sorry, Hanin Ghaddar, is Shia, uh, and uh, she's by no means uh, pro Hezbollah. Um, I think, uh, and you have Maronites uh, by by contrast, right? Their their primary ally in in the government right now is a Maronite party, uh, the Free Patriotic Movement, headed by. Uh, well, but also Michel Aoun, who was a, a symbol of, of Maronite Lebanon's uh, independence and, and rejection of, of, of foreign, uh, foreign occupation, if you look back in the late 1980s. Um, so it really doesn't break down by sect. What it breaks down to is a certain, uh, as they call it, a, a bi'ahadina, a host environment that Hezbollah has created within a certain segment of the Shiite population. And that allows them the legitimacy to claim that they are, as they are, a, a part of Lebanon's social and political fabric, right? If you deny them, you are by proxy denying uh, that group of Shia, not all of them, but a specific group of Shia uh, that, that support them. Right. I just right. add that I, I would make a distinction between, you know, 
support for Hezbollah in those early days and support for Hezbollah today. In, in those early days, you have to remember that the Shia were the downtrodden of Lebanon, the ignored backwater. And um, after the disappearance of um, the cleric Musa Sadr, uh, after a trip to Libya, he had started to galvanize the community together and built what, what became known as Amal, the first kind of Shia um, political militant organization. Um, Hezbollah really played on that and on the Israeli invasion um, and got a lot of support um, as a resistance organization, as an organization that was, there was finally somebody who was standing up for and beginning, especially in the mid to later 1980s, beginning to provide services to this previously really ignored community. Right. Over time, however, that legitimacy has, has uh, you know, ebbed and waned depending on events including, for example, the Israeli withdrawal from southern uh, Lebanon in December 2000, where Hezbollah had to kind of come up with a complete new raison d'etre. So, so what, what, what occupation exactly are you, right. are you opposing? And today, um, as David said, there are real splits in Lebanese society, including within the Shia community. Uh, Hezbollah has no tolerance for that, mind you. And you may recall um, just several months ago, the assassination of Lokman Slim, one of the preeminent Shia um, intellectuals uh, who opposed uh, Hezbollah's theology, who was uh, assassinated, uh, widely believed to be by Hezbollah. They just have a zero tolerance policy for that type of kind of open opposition within the community. Wow. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, one of the more infamous members, which is Imad Mugnia, who is considered the original military leader of Hezbollah. Um, he's been described as a brilliant military tactician and very elusive. He was referred to as the untraceable ghost. Matthew, like, who was he and how was he eventually killed? So we, we could spend an entire two hours on right. him. Yeah, <laughs> he was also known as the fox who never sleeps. Um, he was the original founder of Hezbollah's terrorist wing, the Islamic Jihad Organization. He was the man behind the bombings, two bombings of the U.S. Embassy, the bombing of the U.S. Marine barracks, the plot targeting the French military barracks, the near plot that failed against the Italian military barracks. Those were all part of the multinational force peacekeepers in the early 1980s and a host of other Hezbollah plots around the world. This was the man who had more American blood on his hands than anybody else until 9-11. And I know of people in the U.S. intelligence community who have passed on promotions and refused to move on because this was deeply personal. Among other things, in the bombing of the U.S. Embassy, uh, they, we believe um, just by luck or happenstance or bad luck from our perspective, where the suicide uh, bomber hit was right near where the CIA station office was located. And the chief Middle East analyst uh, aims for the CIA happened to be visiting. So that bombing really decimated the CIA station in Lebanon. We sent in someone else to uh, start a new station. He was kidnapped and brutally murdered by Hezbollah. This became deeply, deeply personal for the CIA. And so it shouldn't surprise that ultimately in February uh, 2008, in what only later became known publicly to have been a joint U.S.-Israeli operation, um, a small, very small shaped charge explosive was placed in the headrest of his Mitsubishi Pajero 4x4 in Damascus as it came out of a meeting with Syrian intelligence one night and um, he met his maker. Um, and that was long in coming. 
but a very, very dangerous man who, by the way, has not ever been fully replaced. His position is now run by committee. He was okay. originally replaced by his brother-in-law, Mustafa Badruddin, who was his kind of sidekick, but was nowhere near as capable. When Mustafa Badruddin was killed in Syria, they basically got a whole committee of people who are trying to fill in that position and nowhere near as well as uh, when Imad Mugnia held it. Right. So just to discuss the 83 bombings, and just to remind our audience who may have forgotten or may some of you may not have been alive. Um, first, there was a U.S. embassy bombing in April 18th, 1983, that killed 32 Lebanese, 17 Americans, uh, 14 people just visiting or passing by. Uh, the victims are mostly embassy and CIA staff members and included several U.S. soldiers. Um, a few months later, uh, early on a Sunday morning, October 23rd, 83, two truck bombs struck buildings in Beirut, housing American and French service members of the multinational force in Lebanon, uh, a military peacekeeping, peacekeeping operation um, that killed 307 people, 241 Americans, 58 French, you know, military uh, civilians and the two attackers. So, David, why did Hezbollah uh, attack America? Why, why was America their target? Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll address that and then just add some things about Mugnia later. Uh, but, yeah, sure. Uh, I think the, the, the reason they, they give is that because the United States had sent in, as they say, an occupying force. This is the common narrative, right, that they were defending Lebanese sovereignty against American occupation. If you look at the historical record, we weren't there for that reason. We had been there initially to, to oversee uh, the removal of the PLO uh, in Arafat after the Israeli invasion. And subsequently, we, we left we went back in after the Sabr Shatila massacre, essentially to act as a peacekeeping force, as part of a multinational force uh, to, to separate the Lebanese from killing each other and prevent the Israelis also from some of their uh, worse excesses. Let's put it right. that way. Um, ultimately, my my take on it is this more had uh, this was more tied to the uh, the worldview that Hezbollah has, which places the United States as its primary enemy. Uh, this is derived from the ideology of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. And let's not forget that at the time, um, the United, its, its patron, Iran and Iraq, were involved in, in, in a long, bloody conflict. And you look at the two actors uh, that, that uh, Hezbollah had targeted, both us and the French, uh, we had been supporting Saddam against the clerical regime. Uh, for a specific time period in specific ways uh, against the Iranians. This, in my reading, was revenge uh, for 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 that more than anything, and you know, Hezbollah does date itself to uh, you know. I guess 1982 is the foundation point, but they've also claimed one peculiar attack that uh, that occurred in 1981 uh, against the Iraqi embassy in Lebanon. Uh, there was a suicide bomber, it would seem, that that detonated himself uh, against uh, uh, the Iraqi embassy in Lebanon. There's nothing specifically proving this was a a, a Hezbollah suicide bomber, but Hezbollah claims a specific martyr who died on that same day. So right. the coincidence seems um, seems a little bit, uh, it seems too much to be coincidental. And this would also kind of track with the idea that these, these movements that existed that were in Lebanon, that were loyal to this ideology in Iran, that were later molded together by the IRGC, held the same animosities uh, towards the same enemies as, as the IRGC and those Iranian patrons, including the Iraqis who were definitely not occupying Lebanon at the time. And this is what we saw subsequently against the United States and the French and different actors. And do you want to add something about, go ahead, Matthew? Yeah. No, just to put a finer point on it, you know, it, it took a long time, but we now know for a fact 
that when Hezbollah as an organization, and again, there are these you know, various militant Motley crew groups that led up to the foundation of Hezbollah. Um, but Hezbollah itself, when it made the decision to stop doing things only targeting the Israelis and to start targeting Western interests, we know for a fact that this was at Iran's behest. This was Iran that made them make this shift, first in Lebanon, then later. The later is especially true, as David said, regarding uh, issues related to the Iran-Iraq war. But in Lebanon in particular, uh, we know from uh, a trial that came out here in Washington, D.C., in U.S. federal court, where a senior U.S. intelligence official testified publicly that uh, U.S. naval intelligence at the time um, eventually got a report, someone got a report on their desk, an intercept from Iran's Ministry of Intelligence and Security, the Iranian version of the CIA, to the Iranian embassy, the Iranian ambassador in Damascus, Syria, telling him to instruct uh, one of the people who was then becoming a leader in Hezbollah to carry out, quote unquote, a spectacular action targeting the U.S. Marines. This is the Marines barracks bombing. Um, and that's then what happened. Uh, that piece of intel didn't get to the desk of anybody who could do anything about it until two days after the bombing, which is deeply distressing and reminiscent of the things that later happened with 9-11 that I lived through myself. But the fact is we can now definitively tie this shift to uh, Hezbollah's intimate ideological and operational ties to Iran. And in time, the, that targeting of Western interests moved beyond, not, not instead of, but not only uh, in, in, in Lebanon, but beyond, first to the Gulf, including attacks on the US embassy and other places in Kuwait, then to Germany, elsewhere in Europe, and ultimately to the Western Hemisphere, Buenos Aires, and other places. And so that, that connection to Iran, I think, is critically important. I mean, are they simply a proxy force of Iran, or is that just too simplified of a... I think it's it is too simplified. Right. Uh, they are a proxy force of Iran. They are Iran's primary proxy. They are first among equals among all these proxies. Iran plays training, coordinating management roles sometimes for Iran's other proxies, even and especially today. But they are also their own group and they have their own interests. Now, when Imad Mugnia was in charge of the terrorist wing, he was uniquely qualified to be able to say to the Iranians, hey, like, let's talk about that. I know you want us to do that, but let's talk about it. Okay. The people who succeeded him can't do that. And so right. Hezbollah has become more beholden and more at the command of uh, the Quds Force today than it sometimes had been in the past. But it does have its own interests sometimes. And there have been times, like when Iran wanted Hezbollah to get involved in the Syrian war more recently. When, when the Iranians first came, Hezbollah said, I don't know if that's a great idea that could undermine our position in Lebanon. Right. But then the Iranians sent someone from the office of the Supreme Leader. And then Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, said, oh, well, why didn't you say so? If, if it's from the office of the Supreme Leader, Hezbollah deeply believes in the principle of Walayat al-Faqih, the rule of the jurisprudent, ultimately meaning that the uh, Supreme Leader of Iran is for them the voice of God on earth, the man to be emulated and followed. So once it came from his mouth, that was it. And we saw the way that they doubled down uh, in Syria. Right. Did you want to add something on Mugnia, uh, David? Yeah, I mean, beyond his just his activities uh, against um, against U.S. interests and his 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 military prowess. I mean, the guy was also a uh, political genius as well. Um, you know, he he was the the person who maintained connections with Yasser Arafat and insisted on maintaining connections with Yasser Arafat. Speaking to 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 what Matt said about the the operational independence that he had. Uh, 
uh, at the, when when Hezbollah and, and the Iranians officially cut ties with him in the wake of the Oslo Accords, he's like, he said, no, well, you know, I think Arafat is playing a tactical move. Let me keep these ties open with him. Uh, and we saw this manifested itself later with uh, weapons shipments uh, to to uh, to the Palestinian factions prior to the Second Intifada. I mean, starting in 1998, according to uh, Hezbollah sources themselves. Now, is this them trying to play up his activity a little bit? Who knows? They also claim that after the Israeli disengagement from Gaza, he traveled uh, to Gaza and uh, laid the groundwork for uh, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, subsequent uh, tunnel warfare activities and their, you know, their their rocket firing prowess. So he was he was good just not just in the in the uh, in in the uh, in the Lebanese arena. He was also brilliant at detecting future patterns that he could exploit to the advantage of his organization. That sometimes his superiors in Iran or Hezbollah uh, didn't themselves notice. So you know, speaking to to the great loss to the organization. Right. So talking about their current leader Hassan Nasrallah. How did he merge as the organization's leader? Um, and and I guess we're sort of talking about that. Does he have absolute control? And you know, what are his sort of core beliefs? You know, what are the where, where does he want to take the organization? What are his aims for for the organization now? So Nasrallah became the secretary general after the assassination of his predecessor Abbas Musa in February two thousand or sorry nineteen ninety two. Initially, he was only supposed to be on for a specific time period. Uh, Hezbollah at the time, uh, its rules dictated that the secretary general would be a, a rotating position. It wouldn't be a permanent position. The man proved to be very charismatic and very important to an element of, 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 of Hezbollah's growth and even its war fighting that I think is very underestimated, the, the psychological uh, uh, impact that the group has. Um, both on on um, on Israeli public opinion, on domestic Lebanese opinion, so they they modified the rules and put him into position uh, as uh, as uh, secretary general for life. Um, in terms of his his beliefs and his ideals, the man seems to be, uh, and I think he is a, a pragmatist, but also a deep believer in related faqih. I think he's made mistakes in the past. He seems to be what makes. Him and Hezbollah formidable, I think, are that they are learning enemies. Uh, this is, you know, for all of his bluster, for example, in the past two years, uh, he has not carried out an action uh, against the Israelis that he knows would precipitate a military response that could lead to war from which Lebanon could not recover in its current service. So he's, he's someone who looks at the, uh, you know, the, the, the playing field in which he operates and understands his limitations and his powers. He's not just an ideological fanatic. At the same time, I think he, is a, he's, he definitely is a committed believer to this ideology that animates him. The two, you know, the two can, we, we often, I think, forget that these two things can exist right. simultaneously. You can have you know, messianist or deeply religious or quote, irrational beliefs and pursue them uh, in very intelligent and rational, uh, in a very intelligent, rational manner. So, so Matthew, he's been in power now for 30 years. You know, has has he changed at all? And it appears, I mean, that's a long time to control this organization. There, he doesn't seem to be getting, he doesn't seem to be that old. I don't know how old he is, but it doesn't seem like he's uh, disappearing anytime soon. So um, anything to add on about him and maybe how he's changed his views over the years? Yeah, he's he's a fairly young man and believed to be in good health. Um, and uh, he is an exceptionally skilled speaker uh, and politician. Uh, he is uh, a very good manager. 
you know, the structure of Hezbollah is such that there are various committees uh, from, you know, uh, politics and parliamentarian to uh, social media, uh, social and media committees, uh, and their jihad committee, their militant committee. And all of them ultimately report up through um, the Shura Council, the Consultative Council, and then the Deputy Secretary General, and Nasrallah himself, the Secretary General. He's believed to play a very, very hands-on role in Hezbollah's operational activities. When Hezbollah was getting involved in the Syrian war, he was personally going to meet with Bashar al-Assad um, on a regular basis and bringing Imad Mugnia with him. Um, Hezbollah operatives have testified here in the United States in open court that uh, their organization, the Islamic Jihad organization, Hezbollah's terrorist wing, uh, certainly does uh, report up to and including Hassan Nasrallah. But as David said, you know, Israeli security officials often describe as being relatively moderate, only in the sense of being very calculating. So unlike Al-Qaeda, if they have an opportunity to kill you, they'll kill you. You'll think about the consequences later. Hezbollah is very different. They're much more calculating. Uh, in some ways, they're much more dangerous, but they're much more calculating. And the fact is that since Hezbollah's tactical, strategic, both errors in 2006 in kidnapping Israeli soldiers from within Israeli territory, uh, and therefore starting what became uh, the July 2006 war, which Nasrallah later himself said, mea culpa, if I'd known how the Israelis would have responded, I wouldn't have done it in the first place. Hmm. Um, since then, basically, it's been pretty quiet. Yeah. Hezbollah has built up a huge arsenal of rockets, not just rockets, but precision-guided munitions. They've spent tremendous amounts of time and money building attack tunnels under the blue line uh, de facto border with Israel into Israeli territory, right near Israeli communities. I've, I've been in one of those tunnels. Yeah. I've been in many, many Hamas tunnels, which look like nothing compared to the Hezbollah tunnel, incredibly sophisticated. So they're not just sitting on their hands doing nothing. They got plans for the future. But the Israelis, I think, would prefer him over somebody else who might be less rational, less calculating and in a sense, they almost appreciate that he, the Iranians use him, Nasrallah, as their kind of guru on all things Lebanese, Palestinian, and Israeli, even as they see him as a hardline militant who ultimately has very, very bad intentions right. for the state of Israel. And in the meantime, is, is absolutely approving uh, operations abroad. Right. So somewhat more predictable, I guess, is better than a wild, a wild, unpredictable person. Have says there been attempts to kill him ever? Have Israelis ever tried to kill him? Or have they content to sort of as you're talking about, almost leave someone that they uh, think is more predictable in power there. 30 years is a long time. So a lot of things have right. happened. Um, <laughs> he's sometimes referred to as uh, Abu Hadi. His son Hadi was killed uh, in an Israeli strike. Um, at least once uh, the Israelis targeted uh, his home um, around the 2006 war. Uh, ever since he has been living in you know unnamed bunkers, uh, typically does not appear in public, but, but via video teleconference at, at rallies with a few really prominent exceptions like the uh, March 8th rally, um, uh, uh, which was you know back after the assassination of Rafi Kariri in 2005, uh, where he appeared in public and instead of standing in front of the Hezbollah flag, stood in front of the Lebanese flag to try and present Hezbollah as being in doing things in the interest of all of Lebanon, something he had to do because here Hezbollah was being accused and was ultimately found guilty by a UN tribunal of assassinating the former prime minister and de facto head of the Sunni community in Lebanon, Rafi Kariri. Right. right. So let's discuss their funding a little bit. Um, maybe, David, you could start with this and Matthew, jump in. Um, 
you know, wh where did they get their funding? And also, why did they feel the need to go abroad? Famously, you know, they've been linked to the narco trafficking in South America as well. I think uh, there's a lot of fail safes, right? I think the, the, the uh, most known stream of funding is the funding they get from the Iranians, but for various reasons that can prove undependable, either because of U.S. sanctions, because of you know the, uh, the internal vicissitudes uh, within Iran. I think what the Iranians also try to do, uh, the model is to create um, organizations that are self-sufficient but ideologically loyal. It's a very smart model. So part of that self-sufficiency is to pursue other uh, streams of revenue. Now, the the, uh, the illicit streams of revenue are, are very much focused on, but they also have otherwise licit streams of revenue. I mean, they have investments in gas, in uh, they have a chain of uh, gasoline, fuel that you would fill in your car. They have a chain of um, clothing stores. Uh, they have uh, pharmacies, they have investments in land, um, they get donations from, uh, they have multiple drives throughout the year to receive charitable donations from within the Lebanese community inside Lebanon. And there's probably untraceable funds that they get uh, from donations from abroad. That's in addition to being involved in, in uh, you know, narco trafficking and, and, and illicit finance. Um, and that also has a security dimension, especially when it comes to, to the Israelis. I mean, that gives them a channel uh, right? with, with, with the drugs in Lebanon. It's not them necessarily, at least in, in open source from what I've heard, you can never trace it directly to Hezbollah giving the order, cultivate these drugs, uh, you know, produce them, ship them abroad. Uh, you have these drug families that exist in the Bekaa Valley that have uh, commerce streams into, into, into Israel with uh, criminal elements in the Arab, Israeli, and Palestinian community. And this for Hezbollah is ideal. They can tap into this uh, both to uh, kind of take a cut, right? If they, if they leave these drug families alone, they can take a cut. And also this allows them um, channels to either gather intelligence from within Israel, pass funds or money to operatives within Israel and Israeli held territories. Um, so there's a lot of benefits to be had from their involvement in, in, in in the drug trade. But if you're asking specifically why um, kind of have this business empire uh, beyond just relying on the Iranians, um, you know, if you're relying on a regime that is a pariah regime exclusively for your funds, it's not a smart model. Right. Especially with all the sanctions. Dave, uh, Matthew, you have something to add about that? I mean, you did a whole podcast series sort of on like the connection of how they they move the, the drugs that wasn't through Africa and then all the way, like a whole chain there, right? So we did one episode on this, um, and um, even before the podcast, I apparently got under Hezbollah's skin for uh, publishing analysis related to Hezbollah's role in the international narcotics trade. This is not referring to the stuff that's happening in the Becca Valley and their drugs for intel uh, activity across the blue line that David was referring. This is referring to a much larger resource and revenue stream which is Hezbollah-affiliated businessmen and criminals um, in Latin America, in Europe, and in Africa, who are not involved in the production of narcotics, but are very close to those who are, including Colombian drug cartels, and they are providing uh, security. They are especially providing uh, money laundering services. Uh, they are laundering a lot of this money uh, through uh, banks around the world, and, and, and including in Lebanon. So while, excuse me, things off all day, just now it goes on. So while Hezbollah is not responsible alone for undermining the Lebanese financial system, they certainly have a, 
uh, a big role to play here. Uh, because I wrote about this uh, extensively, I apparently got under the skin of, of Hezbollah and Hezbollah's deputy um, leader, uh, Naim Qasim, uh, Hassan Nasrallah's deputy, uh, gave about a 40 minute lecture about me on Hezbollah's Almanar television. Let's say he's not a fan um, and does not like the fact that I was putting out there, you know, evidence and information from actual cases of Hezbollah's deep involvement in money laundering activity. And I think when Hezbollah really started to get sensitive to this, was when the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration um, conducted an operation together with seven different European countries called Operation Cedar, which, among other things, led to a prosecution in Paris, France, in a French court, where several Hezbollah operatives and a bunch more just Lebanese criminals who would work with anybody and weren't really Hezbollah themselves, but, but a few of them were really hardcore Hezbollah guys were convicted of money laundering uh, narcotics proceeds for Hezbollah. Uh, and in the podcast, I interviewed the chief uh, European investigator from Europol on that. And, and I think that that kind of caught them. The reason Hezbollah does this, let's be clear, is in part because they can and in part because they, they, they've had to diversify their portfolio after things like 2009, when you had a confluence of events, as David said, you had impact of sanctions, but you also had a sharp drop in the price of oil and you had the green revolution in Iran. A whole bunch of things happened where all of a sudden, as much as Iran loves Hezbollah, they just couldn't afford to send as much money as they were accustomed to. And so Hezbollah started diversifying their resources. Now that relationship, financial relationship between Iran and Hezbollah is consistent over time. And even if it goes up and down uh, in terms of actual amounts, it's believed according to the State Department from about a year ago to be somewhere between 700 to $800 million a year. Wow. The vast majority wow. of Hezbollah's funding is coming from Iran. But in those times when Iran has to kind of scale it back a little bit, Hezbollah's had to shut offices and, and um, provide fewer services. And Hezbollah's all about creating what they call a culture of resistance in Lebanon. They'd much rather you tell them, listen, no free rockets this month. When they have to start cutting back on services and propaganda and, and combining offices and paying people less money or not pe paying people salaries at all this month, all of which has happened, that's a disaster for Hezbollah. And so they wanted to have alternative sources of income, which became even more important in the context of the war in Syria, where the amount of money Iran was giving was fairly consistent. It didn't really increase. And more of it was being earmarked for Syria. And in Lebanon, Hezbollah faced some severe economic crunches. Right. And there's also a misperception that Hezbollah is largely just focused against Israel and in, and in the Levant area, but they've been pretty active in America. I know you've talked detailed that as well in your podcast. Can you talk about some of their activities here in America and, and what are they trying to do here in America? So to be clear, Hezbollah's number one enemy is Israel, but their number two enemy, very close, is the United States. And um, if you follow their open letter after that, France and other Western NATO members. Hezbollah has, has had a presence here in the United States since its inception, and the vast majority of its operatives here are engaged in fundraising schemes, credit card bust-out schemes, um, uh, counterfeit uh, activities, cigarette smuggling, you name it. And the United States is a little bit of a cash cow for them. They make a decent amount of money here. But every once in a while, they've also had operatives here whose job is to carry out surveillance, pre-operational surveillance. The group has never carried an, out an operation in the United States, still to date, never. But it wants to have off-the-shelf planning available to do that should it become the organization's desire to be able to do it and to be able to do it quickly. So a couple of years ago, I testified in New York in the case of Ali Karani, who was ultimately convicted in all charges. 
He was carrying out surveillance in New York City, targeting federal buildings at JFK International Airport, at Pearson International Airport in Toronto. Uh, he was sent uh, after he illegally got a US passport to go to China to try and procure ice packs of the type that Hezbollah uses to build ammonium nitrate explosives. There have been at least two other major Islamic Jihad organization cases here in the United States. There was a partial verdict in one of another one of them just yesterday, where uh, Alexei Saab was convicted on some charges and not others. Uh, but this type of activity in the United States is deeply, deeply disconcerting to counterterrorism officials. Again, though Hezbollah has never carried out an attack in the United States, they're not doing this for funsies, right. not just some kind of test. And they're sending this pre-operational surveillance information back to their handlers in Lebanon, who, again, are not just kind of ignoring it. They're making plans. Wow. Well, I mean, that's that's very scary stuff. And once again, I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this uh, episode was because I don't think people realized uh, how dangerous that organ this organization really is. So, David, you know, they initially were, you know, about kicking Israel out of Lebanon. Um, I guess there's the Sheva Farms is still disputed. And I guess they pivoted now just to be about destroying Israel. Uh you know, what is a future conflict going to look like between Israel and Hezbollah? Their capabilities apparently are 20 times more developed today than they were. They've trained in Syria. They've actually been fighting, you know, on the ground and maybe trying out some of this, this warfare. Obviously, Israel's capabilities have increased as well. So what does uh, this next war look like? I think let's take a step back first and say their their intention was always the destruction of Israel. I mean, when, okay. if you've read right. the 1985 open letter, they really haven't changed that. Even in 2009, they had an updated political document. They said certain foundational issues, certain core issues, uh, including their vision on the future of the state of Israel hasn't changed. And then, yes, the... the um, the occupation of Lebanon was a symptom of their animosity and enmity towards the state of Israel and Zionism. But Israel's existence, period, has always been a problem. Um, yeah, you're right. They have increased their capabilities. And on this, I'd say it's important not to make them 10 feet tall, but also not to, to underestimate them. Uh, they are a very capable force. Now, they have not, despite their experience in, in Syria, they have also not developed the capabilities or the conventional means to be able to challenge Israel conventionally, uh, in the sense that they haven't developed an air force, they haven't developed uh, artillery corps, an artillery corps, they haven't developed a tank corps, nor do they have necessarily um, uh, good answers to those uh, to those Israeli means. Now, they'll say they have uh, uh, weapons that are capable of bringing down Israeli jets. I'm a little skeptical, right? There's always kind of this balance between uh, taking Hezbollah at face value and seeing the actual threat that they pose. Um, so they are able to do a lot of damage, but I think they still will operate primarily as a guerrilla force, uh, a hybrid guerrilla force, not a purely guerrilla force. Uh, but to sit to to transit or transition into a purely conventional army uh, would actually be an advantage to the Israelis. Recent uh, uh, recent commanders, or sorry, command, Israeli uh, commanders have recently said this: that if Hezbollah were to uh, to become a full military force and operate in the open, uh, this would be uh, a, you know they would they would they would have abandoned all of their advantages um, that they derive from being a, a hybrid guerrilla force without compensating with the conventional means to challenge the Israelis. I can speak from experience in 2006 when you know. Uh, we were in Lebanon. I was in the IDF in the in the paratrooper brigade. Part of the difficulty was Hezbollah's elusiveness. And if you go back to 2000 or prior to 2000, uh, during the Israeli occupation of Lebanon, again the 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 main 
uh, thing that bedeviled the Israelis was the elusiveness. And I think Hezbollah will try to maintain that. Now, I also think they've been investing in uh, uh, building up their rocket arsenal for various reasons. Uh, the main emphasis has been on uh, the Katyusha rockets, the the you know the low intensity or sorry the the uh, the low impact, uh, low payload, short range, inaccurate rockets. Now these are cheap, and the advantage they provide to Hezbollah is um, that on the cheap they can counter the this multi billion dollar uh, missile defense system that Israel has invested in uh, Iron Dome. If you fire what what the Israelis are expecting, something around fifteen hundred rockets a day. Right, um, the interception rate of Iron Dome is something between eighty-eight and ninety-two percent. It's not a hermetic seal. Now, right. and you add to that the the uh, the economic costs of a hundred and fifty-dollar rocket versus uh, what is it a fifty thousand to one hundred fifty thousand dollar right. Tamir interceptor. It's not economically sustainable for Israel. Eventually, what you create is a situation that has not just a military element but a psychological element. We have broken through your Iron Dome. You fire fifteen hundred rockets. Assuming Iron Dome, even best case scenario, continues to intercept uh, nonstop, at least 100, 200 of those rockets are going to get through every day. This recreates the situation in the Second Lebanon War with the added element of we've broken through Iron Dome. Right. So that's part of it. There's also the precision. And, and just on that, yeah, does Iron Dome even stop these rockets? You know, they're, they're obviously far more sophisticated than what Hamas is shooting. So does Iron Dome, does Israel know that would work against these sorts of rockets? But the Katyusha rockets are not that sophisticated. Again, they're very they're very similar to to the Qassam rockets that that uh, uh, that Hamas is firing. And Iron Dome will be able to intercept that. You also have, I mean, Israel is also invested in not just Iron Dome, but a multi tiered missile defense system. Uh, you know, David Sling, Arrow Three, and now this uh, the the laser system that they're that right. they're. Uh, uh, they're investing in. So there is an attempt to counter this threat and each stage of it. And the precision guided missiles, which are probably going to be more you know, medium to longer range, uh, that would be the, the job of, of, of David Sling. Uh, so how many of those does Hezbollah have? How many that, you know, that could get through? Uh, last I've seen from, from the Israeli intelligence community, they still haven't developed, acquired enough precision guided missiles uh, in, in quantities that, say, approximate what they have with the Katyusha missiles. Um, they also, as far as the Israelis have said, Tamir Hyman, I think, said this a couple of years ago, they haven't developed a domestic capability to produce those missiles. What they've tried to do is get these, these packages that they'll put on dumb missiles to make them into smart missiles. Um, the Israelis have tried to intercept that. I mean, this is probably what a lot of their strikes are dedicated to in Syria. Um, look, ultimately, the Israelis have defense capabilities. They also have uh, they're also not hermetic seals. I think the next war the Israelis are expecting be, to be devastating on both sides. But I think there's also an understanding within Israel that's emerging that they can't mow the lawn with Hezbollah anymore. Uh, that this needs to be the final engagement with the group. Um, and they're intending to, I mean, for lack of a better word, wreak havoc on the Lebanese side to, to uproot this organization. So it, the next war... It will not be apocalyptic, but it will definitely be very destructive on both sides. Matthew, you have something, anything to add to that? I was just in Israel uh, recently spending some time with the Israeli military, literally on the border, um, talking through all of this. And the Israelis are preparing for the next war. They, they know there will be one, and they know that it will be more devastating than anything they've seen so far. Uh, it will be extremely unpleasant for the Lebanese. Um, which is why it's not happening so soon. Neither the Israelis nor 
Hezbollah want to see this war right now, but at some point Hezbollah is going to need to scratch that itch and it's going to have legitimacy problems that will make it think now is the right time. Right. For Israel, as David said, it's a question of volume of smaller, cheaper rockets that can overwhelm the uh, multiple, multiple tiers of missile defense, enabling some of the uh, more sophisticated uh, smart missiles to get through. And these are things that can be fired at a particular building or in some cases a particular window of a particular building. Uh, and that's a deep, deep concern. Um, the second thing is that Hezbollah has uh, a real desire to be able to break through taboos. And one of those taboos, as David said, is breaking through the protection, the, the air defense system. A bigger one is breaking through the taboo of Hezbollah's inability to conquer territory. Even if they hold that territory for an hour or a day, Hezbollah clearly wants to be able to send its Radwan forces. Radwan was uh, one of the nicknames of Imad Mugnia. This is their special operations forces uh, named for him uh, to be able to kind of swarm in from multiple angles at a, an Israeli civilian community, one of the many just across the blue line uh, and, and hold that territory, um, put up roadblocks or you know, uh, roadside bombs to be able to prevent the IDF from getting to that spot, if only to be able to hold it for a period of time and be able to show that they actually can kind of reconquer, as it were, this territory. Um, the Israelis are quite concerned about that, not because they wouldn't be able to take it back very quickly, but because they're concerned about the psychological effect. And so part of what's going on in terms of the um, military training operations that we're seeing actually today, right now, are aimed at further deterring Hezbollah from thinking once or twice about doing that right now. The fact that Hezbollah is still not as deployed as it used to be in Syria, but still has some interest in Syria and all of the serious things that are going on in terms of Lebanese domestic politics and the economy and everything else, those largely contribute to Hezbollah not wanting to do things right now, but you could see a situation where things devolve enough and Hezbollah needs to distract people against you know, the, the big enemy and decides to do something to invite an Israeli response that would make Lebanese circle the wagons around Hezbollah. Right. So these are all things that the Israelis are considering thinking through as they develop not only their uh, contingency plans, their battle plans, but when and how and, and under what circumstances to respond to different types of Hezbollah's activities. So two, two little follow-ups on that. Have they, does Israel think they have uh, uh, properly handled the terrorist tunnel issue like they have around Gaza? And I know they've discovered many in, you know, the border with Lebanon, but do they think that they've got that under control? And Offensively, we sort of talked more about Israel's more defensive capabilities. Like, what do you think Israel's response would be if Hezbollah did launch a war? So um, the Israelis, for all kinds of obvious reasons, aren't going to talk about it too much in public. But my sense is that they have a good level of comfort about where they are with the tunnels, which is to say that if there are additional tunnels that they haven't made public, <clears throat> that they know where they are, that they are watching them closely, um, and that they haven't shut them down for operational purposes. The majority of the tunnels they found, which are cut through very, very hard rock, it's a completely different topography than in uh, the Gaza Strip. Um, most of them they've filled with cement. The one that they haven't, the one that I've been in, they've kept to be able to show people, even though now because of tensions, it's, it's closed. Um, there may be others that they know about but aren't acting, but the, they have the ability now to be able to identify in this particular topography, this particular rock. I think they're fairly comfortable with that. Um, 
they've made it very, very clear that the response to a Hezbollah incursion is going to be, I wouldn't say unrestrained, but is going to be severe. Uh, and they want the Lebanese public to understand this so that the Lebanese public does not become supportive of the idea. And in fact, you've seen, um, you know, on social media videos of Hezbollah operatives moving rockets around and uh, members of the Druze community or others telling them to get out of our town, get out of it. Not, people are not happy about this. I know a story of one person who found out, a Shia who at the time was supportive of Hezbollah, who found out that Hezbollah was hiding rockets without his knowledge on his property. And even then, he's no longer a fan of Hezbollah. But even then, when he was, he's like, no, guys, not, not on my property. I don't, I don't want retaliation by the Israeli Air Force on my property. Get out. Um, and I think that that's something people need to understand. There's not this kind of big backing for Hezbollah you know, war on behalf of the vast majority of people living in the South because they understand what that would look like. And against the backdrop of the current political and especially economic situation, like the last thing in the world anybody wants. You're muted. David, let's talk about that real quick. So Lebanon is almost a failed state at this point. Their economy is completely collapsed. Uh, what is the state of Lebanon right now? Just briefly, a brief overview. And what role did Hezbollah play in this? And I guess also part of that question is how much control does Hezbollah have over the Lebanese government? Well, look, I think uh, to kind of put that, uh, uh, Lebanon's not in a good way, right? It's, uh, it's right. experiencing one of the worst uh uh, economic disasters in the past 150 years, uh, I mean, they, you know, the, with the port explosion. I mean, the country effectively nuked itself. Uh, one of the worst non-nuclear disasters in history. Um, the role that Hezbollah plays, well, Hezbollah is not the root cause of, of Lebanon's dysfunction. I think anyone who says that hasn't been monitoring Lebanese history since the country's inception, right? right. The country was built on a sectarian model that allowed for the corruption and the you know, intrusion of, of foreign actors uh, to create militias that were, that were loyal to them. This, the, the setting for what created Hezbollah dates back to, to independence. But Hezbollah has a certain symbiosis with the sectarianism and corruption of the system. Hezbollah's goal is to grow. It's not necessarily to destroy Lebanon or to bring it to its knees. It also doesn't want it to be entirely successful. If you have a strong central government, a strong national identity, it obviates the need for a sectarian militia uh, that either purports to provide security to, 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 to its host environment or purports to provide uh, social services and other services or political cover, right? You don't need that anymore. You don't need to turn to Hezbollah. You can turn to any Lebanese party. So they have an interest as much as they've decried sectarianism, as much as they've decried the Taif agreement. They realize that the sectarianism that keeps the Lebanese fractured allows them uh, to, to remain in place. Now, Another part of this, uh, I guess, the the uh, corollary uh, outgrowth of the sectarianism is the corruption. Um, Hezbollah maintains is basically a mainstay of the, of the corrupt system again, because a strong, durable Lebanese state uh, would be able to counter uh, Hezbollah either by taking away its arms or providing social services uh, that would pull people away from the group. Um, how much? Control. So basically, Hezbollah is not the source, uh, but it is the main impediment to any any reform in Lebanon. Uh, if you get rid of them, you still have to deal with well, the Jumblats, the Hariris, the the Owens, the Basiles. Right. Right? March fourteenth and March eighth are two sides of a corrupt coin, but. The, the kind of the, the bodyguard uh, standing at the front is Hezbollah. You remove them, then you can start to work on Lebanon. Um, how much control they have over the Lebanese government? Look, uh, 
you know, it's been described, and I think a little bit kind of uh, uh, overestimating their influence that Hezbollah equals Lebanon equals Hezbollah. I think that's that's a bit of a uh, an exaggeration. I think they control, in the words of Saad Hariri, they control critical junctures of the Lebanese state and establishment and society that allows them to um, act as a foil when necessary to protect their interests and to have the independence to maneuver either militarily or to maneuver socially uh, as, as befits their interests. Right, and Matthew, as David mentioned, there was that massive port blast in Beirut last year that saw 7,500 tons, or was it 2,750, two, 2, well, whatever it is, a lot, 3,000 3, tons of ammonium nitrate explode, which was uh, you know, uh, just an insane, probably beyond a, a nuclear blast, probably one of the biggest explosions I think we've ever seen. Um, does Hezbollah control the ports? Were they behind this? What was the what? What is your sense in that? First, one step back. I just want to underscore something David said. I often describe Hezbollah as the enforcer of the mafia-style uh, governance system in Lebanon. Uh, and so David's right. Hezbollah is not the only party that's responsible. They are responsible, uh, but there are others that are equally responsible. But Hezbollah plays a unique role because they are the only ones who still maintain their arms. And so they are the de facto enforcers right. of this system of poor governance, deep corruption um, that enables them to manipulate um, the levers of power in the Lebanese state. One of those levels of power is control of border crossings. That's land crossings, that's the airport, and that's the seaports. Right. Um, years ago, there is now a since declassified CA report in, uh, you know, before Hezbollah became uh, um, a power in Lebanon that documents how these land, sea, air crossings, land and sea in particular, <clears throat> were never really ever in control of the Lebanese government. Before Hezbollah, they were in the control of the various Palestinian terrorist groups. Wafik Safa, who's the head of uh, security and operations for uh, Hezbollah, has been designated by the US Treasury Department. And part of that designation, they outed the fact that um, he, together with others, maintains control over key Le uh, Lebanese border crossings to be able to move people and goods in and out. So there's really no argument to be made that Hezbollah couldn't have known about the ammonium nitrate that right. was at the seaport. I don't believe that for a minute. They definitely knew about it. We don't know for sure that it was theirs. We do know for sure that Hezbollah had moved ammonium nitrate through that port and some of it had gone to the Assad regime. Um, but whether or not that ammonium nitrate was Hezbollah's, they knew it was there. And by the way, other politicians knew it was there, knew it was unsafe. They knew exactly how unsafe it was. It was all of downtown Beirut sitting on top of or next to a massive, massive bomb. Right. And that's what happened. And there's responsibility for that. And no one's borne responsibility for that. More to the point, Hezbollah has been very aggressive in undermining the investigation into the port explosion, threatening right. Judge Bittar and others, uh, and making it very, very clear that there's something they want to hide here. Right. And I don't think we can definitively say what it is, but it sure smells fishy and looks weird. Hezbollah has something to hide regarding the Beirut port explosion. That's for sure. More than that, we can't say. Right. But there's something wrong. Right. So to go to a couple audience questions, uh, here's one about what's the nexus between Hamas and Hezbollah? How close are they? 
aligned and how close do they work with each other? Sure, I'll start there. Um, look, uh, Iran uses Hezbollah as a means of providing Iranian funds and training and support to other groups, uh, including Hamas. In 1992, the Israelis round up 419 or so Hamas and Islamic Jihad militants, deported them across the border to Lebanon to a hilltop called Marjal Zahor, uh, and really decimated the Hamas and the Islamic Jihad um, kind of terrorist military infrastructure in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip at the time. At the time, it seemed like a brilliant strategy, um, despite international outcries. In retrospect, there were some things about it that were not so good. Hamas, prior to that deportation, had carried out one failed, flawed suicide bombing attempt. While in Marjal Zahor, Hezbollah went and met with the Hamas guys and taught them the fine arts of suicide bombing, taught them the fine arts of uh, intelligence, surveillance, etc., bomb making. And when people like the famous Hamas bomb maker, the engineer Yahya Yash, returned, suddenly Hamas, as we know, became known for pizzeria, cafe, bus suicide bombings. And that was stuff they'd learned from Hezbollah. Hezbollah also was involved in smuggling weapons to them, etc. So this relationship became strong, despite the fact that Hamas is Sunni and Hezbollah is Shia, because right. both Hezbollah and Iran saw in Hamas um, a partner that had utility in putting other types of militant pressure on Israel from the inside. So this was a, an alliance of convenience, shared ideology in terms of wanting to destroy and pester Israel, even if it wasn't a shared theological understanding. Right. And David, maybe touch on that, but also what is the relationship, because there's another question, between Hezbollah and the Palestinian community in Lebanon, um, particularly some of the Palestinian militant groups, uh, one of which fired a rocket recently uh, into Israel? Uh, so well, I guess we'll take them in part. Um, so what Matt was referring to, I guess, has been referred to colloquially, the 1994 expulsion is Hezbollah University. These militants went to Hezbollah University. And for a long time, Hamas tried to maintain some kind of degree of independence, uh, uh, either ideological or operational. And what Hezbollah and Iran have done is also build relations with other groups, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, the Popular Resistance Committee, Sabirin existed for some time. Now, these kind of these more uh, malleable, these more ideologically controllable groups were able to kind of keep Hamas in line. Uh, what we saw was a temporary fissure between Hamas and uh, the broader resistance axis during the Syrian civil war that I think was a little bit overplayed. Um, I mean, by 2014, they were already sending them weapons again. And uh, subsequently, uh, they came to a modus vivendi, whereby Hamas does not talk about the Syrian civil war. This is kind of the main fissure between Sunnis and Shia in the region. Hamas doesn't talk about the Syrian civil war. Um, and the resistance axis, the rest of the resistance axis, doesn't talk about Hamas's silence on that issue, or lack of contribution to that issue. They focus, as Hezbollah's leadership has said, on the common enemy and the common cause, which is you know, destruction of Israel and, and the, the Palestinian cause. Uh, there was even after May 2021 talk in uh, Al-Akhbar, one of Hezbollah's uh, mouthpieces that um, uh, a reconciliation would be effected between Hamas's leadership and the Assad regime. And the Assad regime continued, claimed that it continued to send weapons to Hamas uh, through Hezbollah throughout this entire period. So it's, it's a marriage of convenience, and it's one that Hezbollah doesn't take risks with, and Iran don't take risks with, because they've built uh, factions around Hamas that they can use to keep Hamas in line. Now, regarding um, 
Hezbollah's involvement in the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. Look, some of these groups that exist within the Palestinian territories also operate in Lebanon. And you know, they have different degrees of, of, of friendliness or closeness to Hezbollah, including PFLP, which is, I would say is a very close group to Hezbollah. They have shared ideological goals. Uh, uh, Hamas also exists in the camps. Hezbollah has also tried to do within the camps uh, what it has tried to do with the Shia community. Uh, one thing that's important to understand about Hezbollah, you know, it, it's not a terrorist organization. It is an organization that commits terrorism among many, many other means at its disposal in order to grow. That is its whole point, right? It's not just the guys with the rockets or, or the murders. If it were that simple, uh, you know, we'd be able to have gotten rid of them a, a while ago. A while ago. Uh, their goal is to 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 bury themselves or burrow, burrow themselves with, within populations. Uh, the Palestinian cause is particularly uh, important because of the emotional and religious resonance it has among Arabs and Muslims, um, and because Hezbollah as a Shia organization with its patronage and Iranian organization is a little bit you know, removed uh, from that. Right? They're, they're never underestimate uh, uh, Arab and Persian resentment as well as Shia Sunni resentment. Uh, kind of makes the, the hatred for the Jews pale by comparison sometimes, but um, uh, so for Iran to have the legitimacy to enter the Arab world, the Palestinian cause is, is an excellent uh, gateway. Now, there are obviously true ideological reasons for supporting, but it's also a pragmatic reason for supporting it. You know, Hezbollah is part of that, part of that, that, um, that or Hezbollah is kind of the interlocutor on the Iranian side within the camps. Um, they, uh, you know, they, they, they carry out um, all types of activities, including charitable activities. I and mean, they had a, during Ramadan, they, the Iranian embassy hosts an annual uh, Ramadan um, uh, charity drive for Palestinian camps and Hezbollah is the main intermediary. So they are trying to usurp the Palestinian national cause in a manner that prevents peace with the Israelis, prevents uh, this, this, this central cause of the Arab world from, from going uh, in a way that doesn't suit Iran's interests. And they're doing that um, through through provide provision of weapons and but also through provision of social services, charitable aid, things to win over the so-called hearts and minds of of of, uh, of Palestinians in the camps in Lebanon and Palestinians uh, in, in in the West Bank and Gaza. Now, how much that has worked uh, is a different question, right? Uh, right? Uh, there have been instances of Palestinians in. in different parts that have sided with more of their Sunni tribal uh, allegiances over kind of this material interest. Uh, so the success of this, uh, this soft power operation is, is, you know, up in the air, but um, you know, they have, that's why they have the militant groups. Uh, right. as an alternative. So we're almost out of time, but Matthew, there's just two more quick questions because I think they're pretty good. One is, um, is Hezbollah, do they target Jews around the world? Is there an element of this just being about Israel or is this also, is there something more about Jews, you know, controlling the world, running the world that Iran seems to foment? And then just lastly, briefly, you know, how popular is Hezbollah in Lebanon these days? So Hezbollah doesn't see a difference between being anti-Israel and anti-Jew. And both in their rhetoric, which has been deeply, deeply anti-Semitic. Just yesterday, Nasrallah gave a speech saying, you know, he didn't want any Jews involved, referring to Amos Hochstein, the U.S. Uh, negotiator over maritime border and um, maritime gas deposits. He said, I don't want any Steins involved in this. You know, I don't want any Jews involved in this. Uh, but it's not just in terms of their 
really disgusting anti-Semitic propaganda, Hezbollah also has a history of, of just targeting Jews. Uh, so most famously was the bombing of the Amia Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires in 1994. But just to give you an example of a case that I'm sure nobody here knows about, even David, is at one point the CIA was tracking a plot where Hezbollah and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which does not typically do things abroad, but was thinking about it at the time in the context of the early Oslo years, were thinking of targeting a bunch of Jewish emigres from what was then the, brand, the newly former Soviet Union as they were leaving and targeting a synagogue in Romania where they were congregating wow. as a means of opposing the Oslo Accords. Now, it didn't happen. I don't know if it's because authorities thwarted it or they just didn't do it, but CIA was tracking them, talking about it, and that seemed like a good idea to them. Let's, let's kill some, some former Soviet Jews who have nothing to do with Israel in a synagogue in Romania as they're fleeing persecution. I wrote a piece um, a while back on uh, themes and Hezbollah's anti-Semitic propaganda for the Institute for the Study of what's called uh, Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy. It's a long history of that in terms of their ideology and their operations. Maybe I'll leave the last bit on Hezbollah's popularity in Lebanon to David to give him an opportunity before we close out. Sure. Um, sure. So just a brief comment building off of what Matt said. I mean, I think their animosity to Jews is because they do view us as an extension of the state of Israel. Attacking us uh, will will harm Israel and vice versa. Um, I mean, we, we need to go to one of their spokespeople to say this, right? Or I guess one of their apologists. Amal Saad Ghurayev wrote a book uh, called Hezbollah. Uh, I think it was published in 2001. And she has a whole section dealing with um, Hezbollah's anti-Semitism in contradistinction to its anti-Zionism. And she argues there that, it's, that Hezbollah's anti-Zionism is actually an extension of its anti-Semitism. Right. Uh, anti-Zionism exacerbates, but doesn't create this anti-Semitic feeling. Uh, in terms of its popularity in Lebanon, look, I think we're, we're heading up to the, uh, the parliamentary elections in a couple of days. To whatever degree that is, that is a barometer of, of, of Hezbollah's popularity, we'll see. Um, it, ultimately, I would say, I don't think it matters. Um, because Hezbollah is not is not trying to operate um, by 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 uh, by democracy. It's not it's not trying to take the 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 kind of a roll call of the Lebanese and say, well, what would you like? What would you like? What would you like? Do you like us? How can we adapt our behavior so we can be more productive or suitable to Lebanon? Um, their emphasis um, has been and always will be to maintain uh, this this core uh, group of supporters. Now. Starting in October 2019, uh, with this so-called revolution that happened, there were there were a lot of diagnoses uh, that said that Hezbollah is starting to bleed support, perhaps, but they didn't bleed enough of that core support in sufficient numbers uh, to where they have been socially weakened, to where they're no longer a legitimate political and social voice. And I think that's what matters. As long as they have that, as long as they have a sufficient group of Lebanese that say we ascribe. Uh, to this ideology, or even we support this group for the economic and social and political benefits that we get, because not all of Hezbollah's supporters are these bearded ideological believers in relate to Fatih. So long as they have that, they have a voice. And I think that's what's important. As Matt mentioned uh, at the beginning of this conversation, Hezbollah's popularity ebbs and flows. Uh, what's constant is their desire to continue growing. And as we saw in Syria, um, you know, they, they, they adhere to an ideology, as I've said multiple times, that uh, you know, they, they prefer to rule over rubble than cede power. Um, 
they're not going anywhere if that's what the question is is uh, is is meant to ask but in terms of their popularity it doesn't matter i don't think it matters interesting um well this is incredibly insightful conversation as i think people can tell we can probably talk about this uh for a few hours um before we go matthew and david where can people find you on social media and learn more about your work uh we'll start with you david uh, I mean, I'm, I'm usually found tweeting Hassan Nasrallah, although I've taken a hiatus uh, as of late. Uh, my Twitter handle is David A. Daoud, uh, and my work can be found either at Yuani or on uh, the Atlantic Council website. And Matthew? Yeah, I'm tweeting it at Matt Levitt um, uh, on Twitter. Um, I encourage people to look at the interactive Hezbollah map, which you can find at WashingtonInstitute.org. And for example, we didn't get to talk about things specific to the West Coast, the LA area, but if you go on the map and you zoom in there or you type in Los Angeles, West Coast, you'll find out what the FBI was reporting on Hezbollah in your area about people from LA who went to fight the 2006 war, Operation Bell Bottoms that was run by LAPD and some of the other operations where I did some drive-throughs with LA Sheriff's Department. Um, my book on Hezbollah is over my shoulder. You can see that and you can get that anywhere you get your books. And the podcast, Breaking Hezbollah's Golden Rule, is the latest, and it's a lot of fun. So I encourage you to listen to that. You can find that at WashingtonInstitute.org or anywhere you find your podcasts. Great. We'll, we'll make sure to uh, email out links to all of this so everybody watching and everybody that's going to watch later will have them. Um, once again, also, we urge everybody, we thank all of you for who have attended these sessions. We urge all of you to please share them and uh, please go back and, and watch and listen to ones you may have missed. Um, also, as a nonprofit, uh, to bring you this amazing content and to support our work that we do do, please go to ccfpeace.com. That is ccfpeace.com. We really do rely on donations. David, Matthew, thank you guys so much. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.